Open up your Bibles if you have. We're going to be reading in just a moment out of the book of Acts. I'll get there and also put it up on the board here in just a moment. If we want to go ahead, I don't know who's got the lighting, but I know the lighting comes up in order to help everyone take notes. And if you are taking notes, I affirm you because that's a good thing. I've said for years that a short pencil is better than a long memory. So take some notes, and these are things, you know, I take notes when I go away, and um, I'll stuff them in my Bible, and it's not like I necessarily will look at them instantly, but I will run across certain notes through the years, and I'll look them over, and all of that will come back to me. And so it's a, it's a good thing to be able to do. But we're in the middle of our House Hunter series, we'll not review but uh, tell you that it's all out there, whether it be on Facebook Live or whether it be through YouTube. Uh, you're able to find all of those messages and catch up. And we've just simply been talking about the concept of ecclesiology, which is the big word for understanding what the church is supposed to be all about. How does the church function? How does the church practice? What should we be doing? And the key to ecclesiology is not so much really an understanding of what you or I think church should be, but actually what has God designed it to be? And we've called this series House Hunter because we're wanting to ask the question, what kind of church is God looking for? And so that's the question, and that's what we've been teaching, and we've got a whole bunch of lessons under the belt, but I believe today's going to be uh, insightful as well. When I was going through graduate school, um, I went, at the time, I would describe it as a very uh, theologically moderate uh, perspective seminary. And what I mean by that is, I, I can't say they were all liberals, nor can I say they were all conservative. And when you're using those labels in terms of theology or perspective, usually conservative is way more Bible-affirming and Bible-believing. Conservative usually means... That, that we believe the scripture to be inerrant in everything it touches. But if you're a little more liberal theologically, you tend to see the Bible as sort of only authority in those areas of your faith and maybe how you practice your faith, but it could be wrong in the area of science or it could be wrong in some math or some areas like that. And I'm just trying to, I mean, these aren't great. I, you know me, I hate labels. But I'm just trying to give you sort of a quick understanding of why we use certain labels. And, and usually a conservative perspective meant that they were more evangelistically oriented. Um, again, I'm making sweeping generalizations, I know, but it's just kind of to help everybody get into the mindset. You know, usually they were more uh, evangelistically oriented, discipling oriented, and a lot of times uh, the liberal was more in the areas of what now has become known as social justice or a social gospel. And maybe it had more to do with with you know, feeding people and compassionate ministries. Now, all of these things have a place, and it sometimes ought not be either or. Sometimes it's both and. But I can remember going through graduate school, and there was a phrase that would always come up, especially from those professors that were a little bit more left of, of the uh, uh, spectrum and had a little bit more liberal perspective. They would use this phrase. They would say this to us. They would say, we need to think globally, but act locally. Have you ever heard that? Think globally, but act locally. 
and that could be applied to any one of a number of things. It could be applied in, in some great gospel areas. We need to think about how God wants to win the whole world. He loves the world, wants to win the world uh, globally, but, but while he wants to do something globally, how many of you know we need to act locally? So it could be applied like that. There were those that applied it in terms of, you know, environmental concerns. And, and you know, maybe there was a concern about how were, the, how were the people in the midst of the subcontinent of Africa going to be fed? How can we feed all of these people? And, and it, if, it, if it bothered you, as it should, anybody that's hungry and poor should bother us. But, but how, do you, how do you begin to attack something that massive? Well, you need to think globally, but maybe it would be best if you helped somebody locally. So there's always these great big issues to which we can pause and think about. And it's easy sometimes to see the big issues and to ignore them because of the size or the scope. But then we come back to this idea that perhaps it is this large idea, but just because it's large in scale does not mean there's not an apprehendable place for us to participate in. And this is the illustration that I think I want to use to springboard into what I want to talk about today when it comes to the universal church. The universal church being the church that exists all across the globe. The universal church of Jesus Christ and the local church. And so this is the phrase, when it comes to the church, I'm going to modify that saying and I'll simply make it this. A Christian is to unite universally, but to connect locally. To unite universally, but connect locally. The universal church and the local church are inseparable. If you ever read Watchman Nee and you read anything about him concerning the spiritual man, oftentimes he would teach on the Holy Spirit and our personal spirit that we're created with, and he used to say this phrase, he would say that the Holy Spirit and our spirit are so intricately intertwined that they're indistinguishable. In other words, if the Holy Spirit is in you, his work in your spirit is so intertwined that practically you can't separate the two, except on paper, maybe, where we begin to doctrinally talk to you about the Holy Spirit and then doctrinally talk to you about your own spirit. And those are interesting teachings and interesting discussion. But in reality, these things are so inseparable that practically they're indistinguishable. Are you following me? It's kind of like when you're born again. Remember when you're born again, you're justified, you're regenerated, you're adopted. There are all these things that are happening like this. And I can separate all of these things that are going on inside of you, but the fact of the matter, everything exists at the self-same time. It's almost like it's inseparable. I mean, no one's down here. If you come to an altar and you give your life to Jesus and they say, wait a minute, let's talk about being justified. Let's talk about being regenerated. Let's talk about being adopted. No, 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 no. You were born again. And those things happened and they were inseparable. When it comes to the church, the universal church and the local church, they're distinguishable, but they're as if they're inseparable. Now, this is really important because I told you that, that 
there are those that want to say, well, yeah, I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the body of Christ at large. And they never quite get connected anywhere. And, and they're okay with that because they have this idea that this universal church is just this sort of mystical, ethereal concept to which they can use to justify their non-participation in an actual, tangible local church. And we have to deal with that because that's never what the Bible teaches. I told the people that were gathered here for prayer time that I'm, I'm starting my study with regards to my, my college class that I'll be teaching this Monday night at Southeastern University. And so I'm, I'm having to review all this incredible material with regards to all the forces that were taking place on the early church and on the era that Jesus and the apostles lived in. And it reminded me that in those days, uh, there was a concept called Hellenization. Has, you, you remember reading through your Bible about Hellenized Jews? Hellenized Jews were not Jews that ran into a girl named Helen. And she made a real impact on their lives. That's not what that means. Hellenized Jews literally means Jews that were no longer really Jew in thought, but they'd become Greeked. They were Greeked by their, the Greek philosophy and the, and the Greek understanding and Greek teaching. And everybody can thank Alexander the Great and all of his conquests because everywhere Alexander went, he established Greek thinking. And, and the early church, the Jews and the Christians had to fight against this Greeking. How many of you know right now the American church has to fight against this Americanizing. We think church is what it is in America. There's this westernizing of the church that's not biblical. It's what we do in America, and we think it's right, but it's not Bible. It's America. That's what was going on in Jesus' day. Jesus came, and of all the things he entered into change and transform and take care of one of the things he was dealing with was their minds they were thinking like greeks and they weren't thinking like godly people the jews weren't thinking as jews were supposed to think and it and it affected the church as well and one of the things that has affected us in our greek thinking is this guy by the name of plato and all of his philosophy and he made everything he made everything mystical and it's not bible Listen, I'm going to say this over and over and over again. Every spiritual concept is designed to manifest in reality, physically, naturally. The kingdom of God is not just some place you're going that exists out there, but Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the finger of God, you'll know the kingdom of God has come. Are you following me? What he's saying is, he's saying, don't look here and there. In fact, he literally said this. Don't look here and there with signs appearing, for the kingdom of God is within you, he would say. Everything, even God himself who is spirit, enfleshed himself in Jesus Christ. God who is spirit couldn't even maintain spirit. He incarnated himself to be real and living and in front of our very eyes. So it is with the church. The church is just not some theory. It's not some concept. It's not just some global, this global attachment that all of us have. It, it is that to a degree, but it's meaningless unless we find it to be expressed in a tangible form calling a local church. So in other words, you know how I know that you're a part of the universal church? It's because you're sitting in a local church. That's how we know. People who say, well, I'm a part of the universal church, but they never go to a local church. I'm just saying something's amiss. Because you can't say I'm a part of a church and never be in a local 
church. That is the Bible. Now, here's the question. And this question never gets asked. It's the question of then how do I connect? I'm supposed to connect or unite universally, but connect also locally. So how does this work? In the book of Acts, we find some interesting things taking place in the book of Acts. So we're going to talk about this for just a moment. Our Catholic friends are interesting. How many of you know our Catholic friends basically say this, you can't be saved outside of the church. I mean, that's a Catholic teaching. You can't be saved outside of the church. Well, we understand all of Catholics and Catholicism's issues, and hopefully, and their problems. They have some real doctrinal problems in, in, a, in a, a variety of ways. And their statement of you can't be saved outside of the church, what they're saying is you can't be saved outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, maybe that's been amended. I don't keep up with councils and papal bulls and all the things that come out. But hear me when I say this. Even your salvation and your uniting or connecting to the universal church, which is expressed for a local church, are very intricately intertwined. And we've not done this in America. And the reason not we haven't is because we think like Americans and we think like Greeks instead of thinking like biblical Christians. These are intricately tied together. I'll just say this because some of your minds will be twirling. If you've received Christ, why would you not want to be around what Jesus calls his body? All right, I'll just let that hang. I'll let that be like a dangling participle. I'll let that just hang there for a minute, and we'll get back to that. Let's read some things in the book of Acts, because we see some things beginning to come forth in the book of Acts, because this is where the Holy Spirit is working through uh, Obviously, God's people, the church is being birthed in the book of Acts. And there's some interesting comments that are made as Luke writes this stuff down under inspiration. In Acts 2.41, this is after the day of Pentecost, listen to this. It says, then those who gladly received his word were what? They were baptized. This is going to be important again. We'll come back to it. And that day, about 3,000 souls, now listen to this phrase, were added to who? Added to them. All right, added to them. Interesting. Let's go to another interesting phrase here in Acts 2.47. Again, talking about all these people that are being born again after the day of Pentecost. It says, praising God, having favor with all the people, that the Lord, what? Added to the? Added to the church. Now, remember the last passage was added to them? Now it's added to the church daily, those who were what? Being, being saved, all right? So again, we're defining even who the church is literally uh, uh, consists of. And then finally, in Acts 5.14, another interesting phrase. It says, and believers were increasingly added to the, added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, Here's the part I just want to put out there to you for you to begin to consider. There are these three phrases that come up. The phrases were that as people were being born again, it says that they were added to them, they were added to the church, and they were added to the Lord. All of this was going on. Now, I want to suggest to you 
That in much the same way, if you go into the scriptures, and I'm just using this as an example, sometimes you'll read the kingdom of heaven, sometimes you'll read the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, in my study, I've come to the conclusion that those things are the same exact thing, just communicating maybe a little bit different feature. I'm telling you that all of these phrases added to them, added to the church, added to the Lord, are all speaking the same thing. In other words, when you are saved, you are added to the Lord. When you are saved, you are added to the church. And when you are saved, you should be added to them. In other words, added to a gathering. So they're all interchangeable. Now, back to the question. The natural question then comes forth, can you be saved and not be a part of a local church? Can you be saved? That's the, that's the million dollar question. Can you be saved and not be a part of a local church? Well, here's the answer. The answer is yes and no. You know, this is the Bible. Sometimes the Bible gives yes answers and sometimes no answers, but, but let, let me just parse this a little bit. Can you be saved and not a part of a local church? Well, yes, obviously, yes. There are exceptions, I believe, to what we would consider to be the normal or standard biblical understanding that a believer is connected to a local church. For example, I could tell you the thief on the cross had no time to get to a local church. Did he? Was he saved? Sure he was saved. I can tell you in in churches all over America as well as the world. I mean, there are people who are shut-ins. I had someone communicate to me a private message because I'd said something in one of the Sundays kind of exploring this area, and they say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. What if, what if you're sick or you're in the hospital or you can't get, I mean, are you telling me you're in sin? And I'm saying, no, I'm not saying that. Certainly there are exceptions, and that's why technology can be a beautiful thing. You can keep your connection while dealing with whatever it is that is prohibiting you at that particular moment from being a part of the local gathering. So we used to use the term shut-ins. There are people who are shut-in and they can't get to a local church. Sometimes at nursing homes, the church kind of goes to the nursing home and the church gathers up. And Tracy's mom was in the nursing home. Uh, you know, they had their own little church going on there. And, and that's, that's a valid representation. Maybe, maybe you're... Not you, but maybe you're the first person in some isolated, uh, un-evangelized un, uh, country somewhere, and you're the first one that's ever born again. How, how would you go to church when you're the only one? Well, there would be other ways, obviously, for those people to potentially connect, and how does this work, and, and all of these sorts of things. But hear me when I say this. I gave you a few exceptions. You cannot take a few exceptions and make them the rule. If you're breathing and if you're walking and if you can get up and you can move, you need to participate in the body, a local church. And if you don't want to participate in a body, maybe no one would say this out loud and maybe it will make you bristle, but what's wrong with you? You tell me you're saved and the Holy Spirit works in you, but you don't want to be around Christ's body. That doesn't make sense to me. Does it really make sense to you? Well, I don't like people. I don't like crowds. Well, we're, forget the people. Forget the crowds. You're just obeying the gospel. To not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. But all the more, it says, as you see the day appearing. And I don't know about you, but I see the day appearing. 
So we should be all the more. Now, let's begin to talk about these things. And again, some people will say, well, if my attendance is somehow linked to my salvation, that's works. No, listen, your attendance is not linked to salvation in the sense of works. It's linked to it in the sense of obedience. Works does not equal obedience. If that were the case, we'd be sinning like crazy because anything I did to do to maintain my righteousness or my discipline would be considered works. So I don't have to read my Bible anymore because that's works. I don't have to pray anymore. That's works. I don't have to do. I don't have to worship anymore. That's works. Don't put that guilt on me. Pastor, don't you, don't you put that guilt on me that I got to worship. I got to do anything. I don't have to do anything. It's all works. You just, you don't understand. It's not works. That's obedience. I'll get to that again. Let's talk about what it means, though. To connect. Because this is the part I, I think it's confused, and this is the part that I think needs a little teaching. Connecting according to the Bible. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 6 that is fascinating to me. And so let me read it to you, and then let's explore it. He says, as the writer says, now these are Jews, listen to me, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are who some have already apostatized out of their Christianity and have gone back to their Judaism. In other words, they were saved, they were in the church, they were practicing you know, Christian discipline, but for whatever reason, persecution most think, adversity, hostility came into their life, and they said, I'm done with this Christianity, I'm going back to my Judaism. And so there were some that were doing that, there were others that were contemplating it, considering it. And so he says to them, he says, therefore, let's leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. This word in the Greek is stoikaia, which literally means the ABCs. He says we got to leave the ABCs. You will never weather persecution if you're living in the ABCs. All right, now you need the ABCs in order to get to the deeper things. It doesn't mean they're not important. It just means you'll never weather a persecution. And the reason the church of Jesus Christ is going to be in trouble in America is when the adversity really gets loosed on us, we're not going to survive because we have a church in America that barely, maybe, knows its ABCs. Maybe. But it won't weather because, he, because this is what's happening to them. We already have a historical biblical example. So he says, we've got to leave the ABCs. Let us go on to perfection. Now, he's not talking about let's be errorless. He's talking about let's get on with maturity. Let's become complete. Let's, let's fulfill this thing. Not laying again, he says, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Now, he's not saying this isn't important. He's just saying we're, we just keep going over and over and over this. So let's, let's not lay that foundation again of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, he says, if God permits. Now, again, the context uh, is a rebuke to the Hebrew Christians who are not maturing. And uh, this is... This is probably going to fly in the face of a lot of 21st century American Christianity, but we are a, if we are a church, we are a church that is not maturing. We don't seem to be able to get by this. And so this is the part that has to be established and that we have to understand critically, and it actually gives us the four requirements, if I put it on the screen, the four requirements that are from the Lord of how attachment begins to take place. When it comes to uniting, now remember, we unite with the universal church, but we connect with a local church. 
So how do we unite? We have to get this part first right. The uniting with this global church. I'm united with Christians all over the Charleston area. I'm united with believers all across the state, all across America, all across the globe. If you've never been overseas and gone on a mission trip, it's a wonderful thing to be able to go into a foreign land and to see brothers and sisters in Christ and you begin to worship together and there's this connection that instantly takes place. Why? It's because you both know the same Lord and you're both united in the same church. It's a wonderful thing. So let's talk about what these requirements are. This is what it means to be a part of the church. Now, I'm already beginning to to pick at Sort of the church, I heard this the other day from a guy, I was reading an article, and the guy said this, we no longer do church for the saints. I go, well, then who are you doing church for? Well, we do church for the lost. Well, you're, that's not a church then. Because this is how you connect to a church. All right? The church is not the method. The church itself is not the mission. The church is the gathering by which methods and mission flow from. Here are the four requirements. The first one is this. He says, this is, this is to connect with the church universal, which then will come to the local church. There must be repentance from sin and dead works. Repentance is the key to not only the entrance to the kingdom, but belonging to the church. It's interesting that God commands all men to repent. In Acts 17.30, he said, truly, I believe uh, one of the apostles is preaching, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands what? All men everywhere to repent. So his command to all of us is to repent. Interesting, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. In other words, he's patient, not willing. He doesn't want anyone to perish but that all should come to what? Repentance. Repentance. Repentance is necessary. Listen to what Jesus says. You know, you know what'll mess you up is if you really read Jesus. Everybody's created a Jesus whom they think is this really nice guy who lets them do anything. But if you really read Jesus, you'll find out Jesus, man, he'll yank the slack out of you. This is what he says in Luke 13, verses three and five. He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, what? You will all likewise perish. This is Jesus. Jesus is looking at people in sin and he's saying, stop it. Unless you repent, you're gonna perish. Verse five, he says one more time, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How many of you know the Lord, if he repeats himself, Probably that's significant. It's significant. I just wrote down here, repentance is not simply you felt convicted. That's not repentance. I'm glad you felt convicted, but that's not repentance. Repentance is not just that you're, you're sort of, in a worldly way, sorrowful. You know, a lot of times people are sorry. They're sorry for their dysfunction, but they're sorry in the sense of the upheaval that is produced in their own life. They're sorry because it's created messes all around them. And, it's, and that's not repentance, is not simply being sort of sorry like that. Sorry, or excuse me, repentance is not turning over a new leaf. Repentance is not just believism, which means I just kind of mentally assent to the story. Everybody almost, I think, in America knows the story 
of the crucifixion and the, the death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, it's a fairly widely known story here in America. But that's not repentance. Repentance was the initial message. Listen to this. John the Baptist, when he came preaching, came preaching repentance. Do you know that the first, some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth were words concerning repentance? Peter preached repentance on the day of Pentecost. The apostles preached repentance. Jesus himself looked at all the churches in the book of the Revelation, at least five out of the seven, and he looked at him and said, it is time that you repented. So the initial requirement to connect with the church was repentance. Repentance. This was the initial requirement. You had to have listened. This is what repentance is. Repentance is to change your mind, and literally out of that changed mind, you begin to change your direction. That was the first connecting point of the church. In other words, you couldn't bring your old idols into the church and say, I'm a part of the church, but allow me to keep Zeus and Mercury and Venus, and oh, we still want to keep all the, 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 the temple prostitutes going on, and we're going to keep all this. No, 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 no. All of that stuff, you had to change your mind about all of that stuff, and you had to say, I'm walking another direction. That's what repentance looked like. And so to be connected to the church was not to bring all of the sin with you, but to change your mind about it. Did it mean you were perfect? Certainly not. It didn't mean you were perfect. Nobody's perfect. But here's the problem. We aren't looking for perfection. Remember, we're looking for pursuit. And you're saying, I'm not pursuing that anymore. I'm pursuing this. So it becomes right then for a local church, as it's expressing the universal church, to just go over these things. For instance, have you experienced godly sorrow for sin? Does sinning make you feel bad? I'm, that's a good question. Have you ever humbled yourself before God? Have you confessed your sin and cried out for mercy? Have you forsook your sin? Do you hate sin as God hates it? You know, God hates Dis, your dysfunction as much as you do. He doesn't want you to be in pain. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. He doesn't want bad things for you. He is a good God, and he hates what sin will do. Do you hate what sin will do? And then, out of all that, have you tried to make things right, if at all possible? This is what is called restitution, all right? So these are the first steps, even the first questions, to what it means to connect with the church universal. Now here in America, this isn't, this isn't, I guess, politically correct or church correct in America. We are too busy trying to be liked by everybody so they'll come be with us and sit in a seat. We're too busy accommodating them and saying they're there, it's gonna be all right, God loves you where you are, he knows what's going on. Listen, some of that stuff is right, but it's only right in the sense of you're convicted, you've changed your mind, and you're pursuing a new way. If you're not pursuing a new way, if you just wanna sit in your garbage pile, that is not how you get connected to the universal church. And this is America's problem. Because if we begin to ask these questions, we're immediately labeled with being unloving, uncompassionate, legalistic, 
And I'm telling you, no, 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 no. We're simply, we're simply applying the gospel. We're applying the word in these particular cases. All right? Now, the second step to this is not only that you, you, you move from something, but now once you move from something, you have to move what? To something. So there's repentance from dead works, and then you begin to exercise faith towards God. So you're turning from your old life. In fact, actually, grace is enabling you to turn from your old life in order that you might turn to something else. And you begin to trust you begin to have confidence in something else. What is that confidence in? You begin to trust the Lord, and you begin to trust his word, which is revealed fully through Christ Jesus and has been codified for us within the book that we call the Bible. So we believe, we trust this. We have faith with regards to this, and that's why the Hebrew writer would say again to them, he would say, without faith, it is what? It is impossible to please God without faith. Now, I've said this before, and I want to say it again. True faith is what? Obedience. You can say you trust God, but it doesn't count unless your actions demonstrate that actual trust. Now, that's the hard part, isn't it? Oh, boy, is that hard. Because if I, we, you know the old, uh, the old illustration about the chair, and someone put an old ratty chair up here and say, do you think that chair will hold you up? And it's easy sitting in the nice chair you all are sitting in to be able to look at that and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that'll hold me up. It's another thing for me to say, get up, sit down. We'll find out whether you actually believe what you say you believe. We'll find out if trust really is there in your heart or if it's just something you're saying because you know that's the thing that needs to be said. If this is an old wooden ratty chair and you're saying out there because it's easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that God gave us that chair. I believe that chair will hold me up. I believe everything that needs to be believed about that chair, but I'm not going to get up and actually sit in that chair. Then you, I'm going to suggest to you, you don't have faith. You don't trust what God has said. People have said to me, well, that's works. No, it's not. No, it's not. Faith and obedience are deeply connected. Let me read out of James. James is an interesting book. Just, I'm gonna, is it okay if we read scripture in church? Okay. All right, sometimes if you read too much scripture, people fall asleep. And I'm here to tell you, this is the owner's manual, man. You, you gotta be awake. This is stuff that'll save your life. It'll save your eternity. This is what James says. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now hear me when I say this, this word works, I know how it has become to be defined currently in our culture, but the works actually means this, hear me, in the literal Greek, if I took you through it, it means corresponding, corresponding action. In other words, he's saying you can't say you believe something unless there's corresponding action. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he believes something but does not have corresponding action? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of them, one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have 
Corresponding action is dead. Your faith is a verb, not a noun. Listen, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. See, they're compartmentalizing. That's you, this is me. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith, what? By my corresponding action. See, I trust God with everything. <laughs> this is always funny to me, how you'll trust God with everything. I, I had a, this is years ago, years and years ago. I, got a, I, I had a guy one time, uh, he didn't... He, he didn't want to tithe. He got in a tight spot, and he wasn't going to tithe anymore. And we had to visit about it because he was in leadership. And I said, uh, you know, what's going on here? Well, I trust God, but, you know, I just can't, I just, I just can't follow him in obedience. Well, I said, here, here's the deal. You're a leader, number one, which, which means you've got to model some things. But number two is you can't say that you trust God, and then you refuse to have the corresponding action which he commands of you. It isn't I'll tithe when my environment's right, because what that says is, is that you don't trust God, you trust your environment. Now, I'm using that as an example, but there are thousands of examples I could give. He said, I'll show you my faith by my works, my corresponding action. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe. Here's the interesting part. He says that devils have faith. Do you know that devils believe the gospel? Devils know that Jesus died, he's buried, and he was rose again. You know, all the devils believe that. But he says, they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without a corresponding action is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by that corresponding action, faith was made perfect? Faith becomes faith when you actually walk in it. That's when faith is faith. And this is the connector. It's repentance from an old way of life to where now I'm connecting with a group of people who actually trust God and their corresponding actions line up with what God has said he expects by way of obedience. And all the people said... Amen, thank you, because it was getting a little quiet. Now listen, here we go. The third connecting point, but I wasn't done? Well, I, I'm done. The third connecting point was baptism. Remember in Hebrews where he says, repentance from dead works, faith towards God. we got to get beyond this. These, these are important. And then he said baptisms. Let me talk to you about baptism. This is interesting i got to give credit where credit was due. I was listening to my son's pastor a number of weeks ago, and he did a sermon on baptism that absolutely was the best sermon on baptism I'd ever heard in 35 years. And uh, I'm going to hijack a couple thoughts that he gave, which I think are incredibly important. It was on a different, really, subject than this, but it fits. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into what? One body. So how did you get into the body of Christ? You were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we've all been made to drink into one spirit. Baptism. Baptism is more than a sentimental act of illustrating a new start in your life. It is that. It has all the elements of you being washed with water, you being cleansed, all the things that symbolizes the death 
of Jesus, your identification in his death, and then the identification in the resurrection and the newness of life. These things are true and they are important and we don't want to minimize them. But baptism has another feature that is very, very important that I think gets overlooked. Years ago when we were going through school in seminary, my wife and I were living in a place called, uh, what was that place called? They were the Westerfield. And almost all the seminary students lived in Westerfield in Olathe, Kansas. And uh, a friend from high school, though, happened to be living there. And uh, he was always rowdy. He was, he was what you would call just really, he was hot after the enemy. I mean, he, he lived for the devil full force. And tragic things, unfortunately, when you live for the devil, tragic things happen to you. And, and so it happened to him. But he'd gotten married and he had a child. And they had not connected with the church anywhere, had no really uh, desire to connect with a local church. But there was something inside of him that wanted his child to have some form of initiation, I would suppose. And I was contacted through his dad, who knew my dad because of the jobs that they did together. So my dad contacted me on behalf of them, asking if I would go over to their house and baptize their baby. Now, I don't have enough time probably to go through why it's not necessarily wrong to baptize babies. There were there was incidents in the book of Acts where it says that whole households were baptized, and those that baptized babies believe that that's a covenantal mark. Now, here at, at Legacy, we've always dedicated babies. We've not baptized babies. We've baptized those who could make a profession of faith. I'm not throwing stones at those who baptize babies. The problem sometimes with that is, is that there's inoculation that takes place to where the people who were babies when they were baptized think there's nowhere along the way that they make their faith personal. And so it becomes an inoculation for the reality that comes in Jesus Christ. But I do affirm and I understand why, for instance, our Methodist friends or our Presbyterian friends, they're baptizing babies because... What do you do with a child that grows up in a Christian household and they're under the covenant of the household and, and there's a, a teaching, and I believe it can come from the scriptures, that even children were baptized not, not to remit sins, not to give their personal testimony, but to indicate their connection to a covenant household. Now, I realize those of you that have Baptist backgrounds are twirling inside right now. Because for you, baptizing babies is anathema. And it's not the same as the reason why Catholics baptize babies. Catholics believe that in uh, infant baptism that original sin is rendered impotent. So we don't believe that at all. Yeah, I wish. Yeah, baptize me again. But I'm saying all of this because baptism, baptism, they wanted him to be baptized, but they weren't going to go to church. They were baptizing him in order to somehow appease some religious understanding or, or somehow they were personalizing their own connection to God. Hear me when I say this. Baptism is very, very important and it has a very important place in the household of God, in the church of God because it is our covenant sign. Baptism is the covenant sign. You know, in the Old Testament, you know what the covenant sign was. It existed mostly in the men. And I'm not trying to be indelicate, and I think everybody can follow my train of thought here, but the covenant sign was circumcision. Male babies were circumcised usually at eight days, indicating, the mark indicating that they were part of the house and the tribe of Israel. That's why they were circumcised. And the reason they were circumcised where they were circumcised 
was because it was believed that it was for them and their seed. So this covenant was being transferred from generation to generation. Now, again, we live in a far more, we, I know it's hard to believe because in the day we're living in, it's, it's pretty out there, but, but we're living in a time period where, where uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, we're far more modest. I know it doesn't seem that way. We're far more modest than, than they were back then. I mean, back then, there was a lot of immodesty just from the sense of your natural bodily functions. I mean, if you went to the bathroom, Anybody that studied ancient Rome, you know, they had public bathrooms where it was about a 55-seater. And, and, and guys would go in there, and you'd conduct business while you're going to the restroom. Everybody's going, am I supposed to laugh at this point? Or, I know that seems crazy, doesn't it? I'm just telling you, this is ancient Rome. I've been studying all this stuff again this week. Do you realize that when you were done going to the bathroom, you would then present yourself to somebody who had a basin with a sponge, and they would take care of you? This is, this is, this is, so you understand, I know everybody's looking at me going, you're going there, pastor? This is Bible. It's Bible. My point being is that the covenant sign wasn't all that secret. That's where I was finally leading to. The covenant sign, so whether one's circumcised or not anymore, is, is basically a health issue that is left to parents and, and how they want to raise their kids. But hear me when I say this. In religious terms, baptism represents now not the circumcision of the flesh, but it represents what? The circumcision of the heart. And when you're circumcised in your heart, what this says is this. I am on the Lord's side. I have chosen sides. When I am baptized, I have chosen where I have tossed my life, where I have thrown my marbles. I am now on his side. It's a signal to everyone else that, they, that you are lost to them, but you are found by him. It is one of the most important covenantal signs. In fact, it's actually, when you're baptized, a declaration of war. Because what happened to Jesus after he was baptized? He went into the wilderness, and who did he fight? That's right. And the moment you're baptized, guess who you will fight? It is a declaration of war. Why? Because you have chosen sides. And this is an important aspect. Now, I'm going to rush now because the final one, number four, and i got to hurry. And this is where it's a covenant sign. I'm sorry, I should have got to that. The number four is a confirmation. So, number three was baptism is a covenant sign of circumcision. And number four, then we begin to translate it to the local church is what we call confirmation. What the Hebrew writer said was the laying on of hands. Now, when you come to a local church, what should a local church do when it receives people into its assembly? Well, the first thing you find out, should find out, is have you repented? The second thing you should find out is have, do you have faith towards God? The third thing we find out is have you been baptized? And that these are the connection points with the universal church. And if we're a local church that's an expression of the universal church, then you know what we will then do once we are, once we are confident of those happenings in your life? Here's what we do. We either lay hands on you or we give you the right hand of fellowship and bring you into the fellowship. Because what does that do? It confirms before the church the reality of what it is that you're testifying to. In other words, there's an endorsement. 
to this. Are you following me? We're confirming it or laying hands. Now, this is what's interesting. I'm running. I have to run. I have to run. I have to run. In 1 Timothy 5.22, what did Paul tell Timothy as he was pastoring Ephesus? He said these words. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. This is what he's saying to the pastor at the church of Ephesus. He's saying before you run and lay hands on somebody or give the right hand of fellowship or whatever it is you do to receive them, there is an appropriate place, maybe a time, maybe class, maybe some form of of watching, but there's an appropriate amount of time for you to have the confidence in order to put your hand out and to endorse them or to confirm what it is that they said took place in their life. That's how we as a local church begin to demonstrate our connection to the universal church. Confirmation. In our current seeker-sensitive, sin-accommodating I hear this, we're all God's children. No, we're not. We're all children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. We are all children of wrath. We are all children of the devil until we are born again. And the moment we are born again, that's just John 1, 14. It says to him that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. It's quoting Bible here. We're not all God's children. I'm, I'm, I was not a child of God until, until I humbled myself, confessed my sin, repented, received him, turned away from an old life and walked to a new life. Yes, then I became a children of God, a child of God. But that's not what we're doing in our current 21st era American church. When we look at people and we, 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 we are just a Laodicean mess at times, we say, We say, you know what, there's no need to repent, there's no need to obey, just belong. Belong, believe, behave. Uh. No, you can't belong until you connect right. You connect because something has happened that has brought you into the church. Are you saying, well, then we're supposed to alienate people? No, anybody can come to service that wants to come. You come. I want anybody that wants to come. Come hear the word. Come experience the worship. Come, come, and hear all these things. Only in America, because we had a Judeo-Christian ethic for so many centuries, we have this feeling that everybody's okay. They just need to come sit. Everybody's not okay. So we have to understand we've got to become concerned with people's souls, not their seat. I'll let that dangle out there like a participle too. So, most local churches have some process then to receive members. Why? Why is is there a process? I've had people look at me and go, "Uh -uh, why do I have to do that? I'll never forget the last the last new members class that I tried to have was when we were at the hotel legacy. I think there were like five people in there. Now, I may be wrong on this, but I wanted to meet like two or three times, and they all bailed before the third one. Why? Well, they're all part of the universal body of Christ. They don't have to be a part of a local church. Why should we have to connect anywhere? It's because if you're not connected somewhere, then you're suspect. 
That's why Paul would write letters. Have you ever noticed in Paul's letters that at the end of the letter, he'd affirm some people, and he'd really gig other people? You, you know that, don't you? He, like, Demas hath forsaken me. Receive this brother. Alexander the coppersmith has done me great harm. How would you like to be forever memorialized in God's word as Alexander? Well, he's dead and gone, so he probably doesn't know. But think about that. Why did he do that? Because he was telling the church, telling the church. How about Hymenaeus and Alexander? He was telling them. He was saying, these, these folk are not who they say they are. So why does that happen? It's to affirm the person is indeed actually a part of Christ's church. This is really, really important, isn't it? I've often said that not being a part of a local church is a lot like it's the same spirit that doesn't want to get married, but you just want to live together until it's inconvenient. And then you just don't have to go through the paperwork anymore. Don't have to get lawyers involved. Well, why, why even get paperwork in a local church? Why do you have to do all that? It's all spiritual. Listen, the Lord is hunting for a bride. He is not hunting for a date. He's not hunting for a shack up. He's hunting for a bride. He's hunting for a church that's connected to him in a covenant. And I'm teaching it to you because, as I said at the beginning, sometime, somewhere, at some place, probably, you're going to be on a journey again, and you're going to have to ask yourself the question, why am I a part of a local church, and is this the local church I need to be a part of? And I'm telling you, if you find the right one, you will find, this is what Jacob found. He found, it says, the portal of heaven. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Stand with me, will you please?